I'd like to reflect this evening on what it is that really matters. As we've been here together over this time, involved in meditation and uh, that particular way of engaging in our experience, we might wonder, why are we doing this? What's this directed towards? What's the purpose, what's the potential of this process, of this journey. And the journey of meditation, the journey of awakening is a process of really coming to see for ourselves what matters, coming to align our lives with what we most deeply and truly value and coming to understand how if we don't reflect upon and explore this question of what matters and what enables us to live in accord with what we value, with what we love, with what we feel is precious in life, then easily the remarkable opportunity that we have, this existence itself, can pass us by. And so... In terms of what matters, the place we begin is right here, right now, because this matters. Being present, being awake, is all about engaging with what is here, right now. And so we've been speaking about that, encouraging you to engage with this experience right here, right now. There's a poem by Wu Men. He writes, Ten thousand flowers in spring, A cool breeze in summer, The moon in autumn, Snow in winter. If your mind isn't clouded by unnecessary things, This is the best season of your life. So what does it mean to contemplate this? That our mind not be clouded by unnecessary things. What we see, what's immediately obvious as we engage in meditation practice, is our mind. I'm assuming you've noticed your mind today, probably more frequently than you would have wished. And as I think I might have said in one of the groups, we give the instructions that suggest pay attention to your mind, sorry, pay attention to your breath. But the effect of doing that is that we see our mind. We encounter our inner life and the forces and the pressures that are generated within it. And we see how that activity of mind creates easily a sense of unease, of discomfort, of dissatisfaction. That being lost in our minds is not where we want to be. So 
What is it that's unnecessary? When the mind is clouded by unnecessary, when the mind is not clouded by unnecessary things, this is the best season of your life. So initially we encounter what seem to be the clouds, the cloudedness of our mind. It seems kind of murky or kind of thick or kind of dense. It doesn't feel clear or calm in the way we might wish for it to be. And yet, if we react to that, if we start to struggle with that experience, that encounter of our mind as something kind of busy or kind of full, what we see is that reaction, that struggle, simply intensifies the discomfort, the dis-ease, we could say. And it certainly doesn't allow for us to to be able to relax or to in any way release the sense of that cloudedness. The struggling with the cloudedness of mind or the activity of mind seems to increase it. So rather than struggle with it, we need to look at it. We need to reflect upon it, give consideration to what's happening. Because clearly this momentum of our mind isn't something that's just happened because we came to meditation retreat and we sat down, we're told to watch our breath or be mindful of taking a step on the grass one at a time. That's not what got our mind all busy and agitated or confused or reactive or whatever it is you might have experienced. And certainly plenty of you have spoken about in the in the groups we've had. It's not generated by the situation, but it is revealed to us that this is what goes on. That's what happens when we sit down to practice, when we walk mindfully back and forth. The fact that it's so difficult to be present is revealing something to us. It's showing us really the effect of our life. Where we are is showing us the effect of our life. It's not a random thing and it's not something done to us by somebody else or something outside. The condition we arrive in, the condition our experience arises within, is born of our life. And what that means, or what we can understand from that, is that we've lived most of our life, given much of our time and energy to that mental activity. Mostly abandoning ourselves quite happily to it, allowing it to drive us, to direct us, to inform us of what is true or right or needed. And yet, we're mostly unaware of it going on. Here we become aware of it. And yet it's very easy then to start to blame. To start to blame ourselves or to blame our experience for what's happening. And that's not useful, but we do need to take responsibility. There's a there's a story of a, of a businessman who... Uh, was going on a, a, a journey out into the country to a very important meeting in which he was hoping to conclude a deal that would be worth a lot of money. And as he was driving out in the country lanes, and probably not dissimilar to how it might have felt for some of you coming to Guy House yesterday, starting to wonder, whoop, I don't quite know where I am. You know, Am I on the right track? And anyway, in the story, 
This businessman gets lost. He doesn't know where he is. So he stops at a field where he sees a farmer in the field who's ploughing um, or working in the field in some way, and he calls out to him. The farmer comes over and he says, excuse me, could you tell me the way to this this place I'm trying to get to? And the farmer says, oh, I've never heard of that place. I don't know where it is. You know, the name of that, that sort of that, um, centre or wherever he, he's going. He hasn't heard it. Farmer doesn't know where it is. He says, I'm sorry. The businessman's a bit frustrated because he's late and it's an important meeting. He says, well, okay, can you tell me the name of this road that I'm driving on so I can find it on my satellite navigation system? And the farmer says, I don't know if it's got a name. If it's got a name, I don't know what it is. Sorry, I can't help you. And uh, the farmer says, okay, can can you tell me the the quickest way to get to the, to the, the main town here so at least I can go somewhere I know? And start from there. The farmer says, well, I know you could go this way, you could go that way. I'm not in a hurry, so I don't know the quickest way. I just, you know, go home and then do the next thing. And the, the businessman was getting really frustrated. He says, God, you don't seem to know very much at all, do you? And the farmer looked at him and smiled. He said, you know, that's probably true, but I'm not lost. <laughs> And I think there's something useful in reflecting in that, that story about how when we find ourselves lost in our experience, lost in our minds so often, what we tend to do is get angry with what's happening or angry with ourselves or angry or frustrated or struggling with the experience, feeling somehow I shouldn't be here. And yet we haven't really stopped to allow ourselves to be there, to know where it is that we are. And in the sort of in the groups, often what we hear reported is the sense of, oh, I'm here and I'm not really sure I want to be here. And then we invite you or ask, you know, okay, so what's it like to be there? What's it like to be in this place? And often what's kind of remarkable is that if it's possible to really be where one is, rather than think I shouldn't be here, oh, actually it's okay. It's not so bad. We're no longer lost when we turn towards where we are. But we need to understand how we become lost. We need to understand the forces that are moving within us, how we're pulled by fear and by desire, how these these primal forces in the mind that are designed or there in order to enable us to survive at some level. That's what they're about, to protect or to preserve our physical well-being or our very physical existence. We, we have them as, and they have some value because we, we need to you know, be able to avoid things that are harmful to us and to be able to get food and the other things, shelter that we need. But what happens is we tend to live completely dominated by these forces. So that no matter where we are, we're constantly reacting to what's happening out of a sense of fear or desire. How there's this constant sense of being pulled that goes on. And the way that pulling shows itself or the way it happens is that we start to look into the past, looking at the stories of what our memories tell us about what happened in order to explain where we are. Now, if we're somewhere that we want to be, we look to figure out, how did I get here so that I can 
repeat it or make it continue or sustain it. Because that's what we want to happen. We want to continue this experience if it's somewhere pleasant or nice. I mean, maybe you had a moment during the uh, sitting today where suddenly all that busy mind and or drowsiness or discomfort in the body just wasn't there. And one was just with a breath and breathing in. It's like, huh, oh, that's what this is all about. Oh, how nice. Great. I've done it. I'm here. How did I do that? Was it because I folded my legs the other way? Or maybe it was because of this. And we get all busy trying to figure out how we did that. Of course, the moment we're busy trying to figure out how we got there, we're not there anymore. We're kind of disappointed. Oh, no, I've blown it. I've messed it up. And that whole disappointment that follows. But seeing how we leave where we are to somehow figure out how we got there. So that if we like where we are, we can continue it or repeat it or make it happen again. Or if it's somewhere that we find we don't really like, it's like, oh, I'm feeling a bit kind of tired or down and struggling. It's kind of frustrating. I've had enough. I'm not getting anywhere. This meditation doesn't work. And we see, oh, Kind of, it's no good. You think, what's happened? How did I get here? Oh, God. What, what made me do this? This is a bad idea. I shouldn't ever do another meditation retreat. Make sure, make a note you know, in your mind, don't do this again. It's really unpleasant. It's really painful. It can't be good for me. And again, rather than experiencing what's happened, we're trying to figure out how we got here and then trying to work out how we can make sure we don't stay here and never get here again. This whole movement of our life where we're struggling with and attempting to control experiences, wanting one thing to end, wanting another thing to continue. And to see, see how that goes on and goes on and goes on in our minds. If we don't look at it, if we don't see it, if we don't address it, it's like it comes from our life into our meditation. And we see it playing there. But as I say this, say this, as I speak about this, it's important when we notice what's happening within ourselves to, to not be hard or critical about that reality, but to see it with compassion for ourselves. To see, oh yeah, look, this is what we do. There's a, a lovely story that was uh, I heard related about uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama who was telling this story at a, at a conference in America some years ago. And he said he'd been invited to a, um, to I think it was a Trappist monastery somewhere in America. And he was at this monastery and they were taking him around and showing him all the different features of the, the monastery. And they were very proud of this monastery, of the fact that they made these wonderful cheeses. It was part of how they supported themselves. And they sold their cheeses all across the country and even internationally. And they were regarded as very good cheeses, they made. And they also um, baked sort of fruit cake, which they sold at the local village fair. And it was just regarded as you know not nothing particularly exciting, but just fruit cake. And these were their sort of little industries that... Um, his holiness was describing being told about and he said you know and all through the day they kept bringing me these pieces of cheese there was this cheese and that cheese and it was all very nice the cheese you know I didn't mind the cheese but he said all day I wanted a piece of that fruitcake (laughs) and you know to see and this is someone who spent many many years engaged in meditation practice and 
the cultivation of heart and mind, and yet still able to really acknowledge and own that movement of I want, and that, that kind of sense of how we're often you know, being offered award-winning cheeses and we're not happy. Because we want that good old fruitcake. You know? Don't we recognize that in ourselves? Do we see how we're like that? Not, oh, that's stupid or that's bad, but oh, look at that. Like, can we see that with a tenderness in our hearts? To say, oh, look at that. Look at, look at this, this human being. Look what it does. Look how we live our lives. You know, there's so much pressure. There's so many demands upon us. One of the things that many people report is coming here feeling exhausted and full, full of their lives, overfilled, full to bursting with everything we have to contend with, engage with, deal with, resolve. And we come here and it's like, oh, wow, what a relief. I don't have to do so much. And yet, very quickly we start to create out of the situation a place where we have to get it right and we have to do it perfectly and I'm sitting here and my knee really hurts but I can't move because I'll disturb everybody else. It's like there's this pressure we place upon ourselves. But it's okay to move your leg. Or we want to sneeze and you know, I'm not going to sneeze. I will not sneeze. We're going to explode but we're not going to sneeze. As if somehow sneezing was against the rules. But I don't think... I mean, maybe when I wasn't here, Kirsten said sneezing was against the rules, but I don't think she would have. And certainly it didn't happen while I was here. But somehow we think it's really quiet, and we're supposed to be quiet, so I'm not allowed to sneeze. But life hadn't heard about that rule, and life's saying, sneeze. So what do we do? Do we explode? You know... Or do we just, okay, here comes sneezing. Can I do it consciously? What would it be to really be mindful when you sneezed? And I really feel it. It's this little tickle in the nose and then this whole bolt of energy just goes through the body. And whoomph, sneezing happens. And it's kind of remarkable actually, sneezing. I can see myself going off on a tangent here. but um, (laughs) So at least I'm mindful of it, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to stop. Sneezing. Have you ever tried to do it yourself? (laughs) You know, sneezing involves the body expelling air at over 100 miles an hour. And it knows how to do it. But we don't. We can't sneeze, but sneezing happens through us. It's kind of interesting to reflect on that, to see what's really happening here, what's really happening in life. Much of what's happening is moving through us. And yet we somehow assume control or responsibility for what's moving through. And yet what we see is we can't control it. And our responsibility is not for that it happens, but how we meet it, how we respond to it. Can we engage with our life rather than judge ourselves for it? So the sense of engaging with experience in that way of pressure, of expectation, of demands, that is so much the way of the world, it's like unconsciously there's something inside us that imagines we've lost something, or that something's missing, or something's not right. And we don't 
really articulate that to ourselves. We don't say, oh, there's something missing. Maybe we do sometimes. But often more what we do is we simply enact that by wherever we are or whatever's happening, there's always a sense of, but not this. So we're not happy with where we are and we're trying to get somewhere else. Or even when we're happy with where we are, we're afraid that we won't stay there. Have you noticed that? How that happens? I mean, it happens all the time in here. Seems to me we're... We're looking for something else. It's like we're sitting in the meditation. And it's, oh, my mind, you know. I wish my mind would just be quiet. Did anyone have that thought here today? I wish my mind would just stop thinking. But what's happening right now is that the only thought in my mind is the fact that it's wishing it would be quiet. So it's obviously not that convinced about that particular wish. Or else we just wouldn't bother having it. And then it would be quiet. And there's that sense of, I wish my mind would be quiet. <laughs> you know, I can't be present. I can't do this. And then, as someone was reporting, in fact, in the, in the, in the group, sometimes the mind does become quiet. And it's like, huh. We're there, the breath, and it's just... Boring. <laughs> Boring. I was told, I was expecting that when I could finally be with the breath, it was going to be like, yeah, got it, wow. But we get there and it's boring. So, or, you know, another classic one is we're sitting there, my knee hurts, or my ankle, or my back. And I was like, oh, I really wish this pain wouldn't go, wouldn't keep happening. I really wish I could just be comfortable. You know? And so many times people come and say, gosh, well, finally the pain went away. And it's the nature of pain. It comes and it goes. Pain went away. I've been wishing for it to go away for so long. And then without the pain to keep me awake, I started falling asleep. <laughs> it's like we can't win. It's like we can't win. Or we're sitting and we're thinking, I can't wait for the walking. This sitting is boring. Or this sitting is painful or, or whatever. Frustrating. My mind keeps going on and on and on. But the walking, oh, the walking, I can't wait. Wait, wait, when they ring that bell, just please ring that bell. I want to get to that walking. And the bell rings and it's like, whoa, walking time, yeah. We get out there and we're walking and you know, we're not going anywhere. And it's pretty much the same as the last time. We start think, what's the point of this? Maybe the sitting or lunch. Do you see your mind doing that? Lunch. Lunch, lunch. <laughs> and of course, the bell rings for lunch, and it's like, gotta get there, gotta get there. What if there's not enough? What if all those greedy other people in front of me take it all? Did anyone have that thought at the back of the line today? I've had it before, at the back of the line. And it's like lunch is kind of all this fear arising. And then we get the lunch, and there was plenty of it. And it's lovely. And it's like, oh, Brief moment of, ah, whew, you know. Whew. And then, of course, how many bites do we take before we forget we're eating our lunch? And we're busy thinking of something else, like a cup of tea, or having to wash the dishes, or will I go for a nap or have a walk? Do you see your mind here? That relentless momentum. 
And how there's this underlying unease in it, this underlying discomfort, unease, sense of agitation or dissatisfaction. And there's this promise that seems to be offered to us that if we can just get something else or somewhere else or become somebody else, if we can just fix whatever it is that's wrong, sort out whatever we imagine needs fixing, then we can rest. Then we can stop. But it doesn't happen, does it? When we aren't conscious of that process, it goes on and on and on. And it's exhausting. It's frustrating. And it's not satisfying. It doesn't, it doesn't conduce to happiness. It doesn't conduce to peacefulness. It doesn't conduce to ease or to well-being. So, what can we do? Really, we're asked to look again at our life. Look and see what's important. Our culture and our world tends to value producing and consuming, as if somehow by producing and consuming, true meaning or value or satisfaction can be derived and the expression of this in our, in our mind and our lives is that process of pursuing experiences or attempting to avoid them. But what happens when we see this is that in order for that to really work, this is kind of like a materialistic orientation, in order for that to work, we need to be able to control our experience. So we can get the things we want and we can avoid the things we don't like but we can't control our experience. That's really frustrating. And sometimes we come along to meditation thinking, this is going to be the way that's going to allow me to control my experience. At least if I can control my mind, things will be a lot better. And, of course, this practice has a profound power to transform our mind and heart and life and to influence and shape it in a wholesome way. But it's not that we can control it. And you've seen that today, for sure. You've spoken about it, many of you. Seeing that this experience of body and mind is not in our control, what's that like for you? You know, this that seems so close to us. You know, we can be annoyed with all these things in the world, and there are many things that we might wish to engage with in a wholesome way to to bring beneficial transformation. But if we have the sense of, you know, I don't like the way the world is, don't like the way my mind is, don't like the way my body is, if we relate to it in that way, there's a certain sense of distance and a certain sense of disconnection that we live in and that distance and disconnection is actually where the the root of that dissatisfaction that sense of something missing or something lost is to be found the sense that you know seeing that 
We can't get our body to be a certain way. You know, it's uncomfortable. In one moment it's uncomfortable, another moment it's drowsy, and, you know, it feels like we're exhausted, there's no energy, you know. can barely keep our eyelids up. And other times we're agitated, it's like we're full of energy, there's way too much energy. We want to go somewhere, anywhere, but not be here. And we see how this energy moves, and it seems to have its own life, just as our minds move. And seem to have their own life. Seeing that we can't control it. Seeing that it's not doing what we want it to. Maybe we could start to recognize, start to sense that controlling and manipulating the experience isn't what life is really all about. And that attempting to control or manipulate our experience doesn't provide us the satisfaction that we hope for because we're not able to control it. So, what do we do? We're asked to engage with our life, to engage with the sense of what's here. And what that asks us to do and what's the, really the most important thing we, we engage with is what's here. And in order to do that, we have to first of all release it. We have to let it go. And that doesn't mean we're pushing it away. It means let go of the pressure and the demands we're placing upon what's here. On our experience, on ourselves. That sense of it must be like this, it must not be like that. I'll only really connect, I'll only really be present, I'll only really live my life if it's the way I think it should be or the way I want it to be. It's like I'll reject it unless it fits in with my model or my expectation. If we come from that place, we end up rejecting it and we're not left with... Because if we reject what we've got, there's nothing else. There isn't something else. It's not like by rejecting the thing we don't want or think shouldn't be here, that therefore we get the thing we want or the thing we should get, we think should be here. No, we just lose what's here. We lose our connection with what's here. And in that, there's a profound loss. (coughs) So releasing our life on a moment-to-moment level is to release our life life from the grip of our demands and our expectations. To release just one moment's experience, to allow it to be what it is, is to release ourselves, to release our life in that moment, because our life is that moment, is this moment. That's all we ever have. That's all we're ever given. And that's all we really need to meet, is just here. Just this. And in that releasing of it, by releasing the expectation and the demands from our life, by taking that pressure away. And, you know, for all that we think that pressure serves us, that somehow putting pressure on our life is moving it in the way we want it to go, for all that we might imagine that to be so until we've examined what's really true here, 
we deeply yearn for the end of that pressure. We deeply long to not be under that pressure that demands things to be other than as they are. Because what we experience it as is a demand that we be other than as we are. As a reject, as in rejecting what's happening right here in this moment, we're at some level also rejecting our very experience, our existence, and what we call ourselves, what we imagine ourselves to be. And that's deeply painful. So when we stop rejecting it, when we or stop rejecting it's kind of the wrong way to because we can't just stop that process. What we've noticed is we can see it happening and stop believing it, stop acting on it, stop reinforcing it. And as we do that, it starts to lose its power. It may take time. It may take longer than a weekend if we've spent how many decades doing this in our lives unquestioningly? But we can even in a short period of time begin to feel it softening or weakening or dropping away, even just maybe for moments or maybe longer, where we're not putting that pressure on, that demand, that it must be like this or it must not be like that. And then we can receive our life. Then we're actually open to what it is, to how it is. And in that receiving, there's a there's an immense kindness that's extended to our life, to ourselves, and to our experience. Just as that that sense of demanding that it be a certain way is experienced as an unkindness. I mean, imagine you, you meet someone, or you don't have to imagine meeting someone. It's happened to all of us, you know, in families or workplaces or wherever, where how we are isn't okay. How we show up, somebody else wants us to be different. What's that like for us? It doesn't make me feel good. I imagine it's the same for you. So there's an immense unkindness in being unwilling to receive someone as they are. And there's an immense kindness that we feel when we're received as we are. Like what, 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 What's really kindness to us? Now, if you're not thinking in terms of sort of someone helping us out, which is also kindness and lovely, it's that sense of when we're seen for what we are and really received as that, allowed to be that, not told you should be different, you should have worn different clothes or, you know, be somebody else. Part of what's here is we kind of leave a lot of all that behind because we're not, you know, we're not engaging at that level of the more sort of superficial evaluation of you know what we like and don't like about others or ourselves or at least certainly not we're we're not verbalizing all of it we might still be conceiving it and that kind of lets some of the pressure go so we can just be here we don't have to worry about whether other people like what we're wearing because if they don't that's just going to have to be something they have to deal with in their mind we don't have to deal with it now although we might notice that we have some anxiety about whether we should be worrying about that it's kind of funny. Yesterday, when Kirsten and I turned up, we were both wearing sort of a sort of tan or cream trousers and green tops. We looked at each other and thought, "Hmm, okay. Well, we could just go in there, but I actually decided I'll put on a different shirt because otherwise they'll think we've got a uniform here." <laughs> and everyone who's wearing a sort of a green top and a cream or tan trousers or skirt will think, "I'm in." And everyone else will think, "Oh no." 
because so quickly we create stories. And, you know, in lots of situations you see lots of people lined up in rows, sitting on cushions, all wearing exactly the same clothes. And probably many of you, and certainly me, would be a little bit hesitant about going somewhere like that. But all that story, it's all, you know, not that important. Not that important. And so there's a kindness in just our being here together without getting into all of that. And in our experience, in the meeting of what's happening, the breath, a sound, the fact that thinking arises or some feelings come into our heart, not rejecting them, not demanding that they be different, like, this is sadness, I don't want sadness, go away, I hate this. Or this is frustration, I don't want to be frustrated, I want to be relaxed, I came here to have a good time. But here's frustration, or sadness, or whatever. If we're not placing a demand on it, there's a a way in which that expresses an openness of heart, a kindness, a receiving of what's here. And that receiving allows us to touch it more deeply, to let it in, so to speak, to receive our life. We have to let it go, or let go of our demand on it, let it be as it is. And then, of course, it's pouring into us anyway, it's pouring through anyway, but we're no longer in a battle with it. And rather than battling, we see that we can connect. We can allow ourselves to be touched by what's happening. And sometimes it's tender. And sometimes it's sweet. And sometimes it's just kind of ordinary. And all of those are okay. When we're not disconnected from our experience, there's another whole dimension that opens up, that isn't about what's happening in the experience. We think it's all about what's happening in the experience. If we can start getting into you know, how many breaths I managed to be with before my mind sort of slipped away, it would be sort of one breath, two breaths, three breaths. And we think, oh no, I only managed six breaths before my mind whizzed off. You know, And if we would say that in the small group interview, no one did today, at least not to me, but um, we would say, you know, I only managed six breaths. I've heard it many times. Someone else in the group would be thinking, six breaths? Six whole breaths? You know, and it's like, but really, that's not the point. It's like, do we see what's going on here? Do we see our mind? And so we... So we train ourselves to be here, to connect, so that we can see what's going on. And the spirit of doing that, it's, it's like training a puppy. It's like, you know, for a puppy to live well in this world, in a human world, as a, as a pet of a, you know, in, in what we call civilization, we can't just let it grow up and be driven by all its sort of instinctive behavior. You need to train it as a kindness for this puppy. If you let it just run wild in an urban environment, it... It won't be okay. It won't be a happy puppy. And so, you know, maybe we train it. One thing we need to train it, we need to do is kind of restrain how much we feed it. If you just feed a puppy, it'll just keep eating. I don't know if you're sort of familiar with puppies, but, uh, and dogs, you know, basically you feed them, they'll eat it. They'll eat it till they're sick, and once they're sick, they'll start again if you give them some more. <laughs> you know, isn't that like a, oh, it's kind of funny, isn't it? But you know how we gorge on experience? Are we just gorge on experience? Are we just constantly looking for something more? Someone, and I won't identify them, but it was kind of, you know, interesting <coughs> acknowledging um, today 
having gone up to the room and having had to bring their computer because they were doing some of the work, you know, getting out their computer because there was just nothing going on here, and having you know looking at their computer. And that I don't know if they this person just looked at their computer like mm, nice piece of equipment or actually opened it up and got into something, but felt better for having done it. You know, I don't know about you guys most of the time, but you know, going and doing work doesn't normally make me feel better. But when we've got nothing to do, you know, we'll take it because we're so used to gorging ourselves. And in a way, we turn up here feeling sick because we're so full in a sort of very deep way. So we're fasting in a sense. Not like some absolute um, fast, perhaps more like a sort of a, a wise diet. Not taking so much in. And there's a certain cleansing process that happens as we do that. Just as when we don't eat so much, we eat moderately, hopefully, skillfully if we can. Um, one can really taste the food. And here, we notice our ability to sense and to feel and be touched by things begins to become more clear, more sensitized. So we might just be walking and we'll just see a leaf on a tree or a pebble on the path and we just see it and there's something about it it's like it shines it's just like all the other pebbles we've seen or leaves or whatever or there's an insect and it's like wow we just enjoy watching it the way we might not have done since we were four and first encountered an insect of that sort you know and it's like there's something fresh that happens when we don't overstuff ourselves with experience but it's hard to do that because we're used to we're used to being always filled up and at some level it's uncomfortable not to. But just like you know, taking a little bit less food, there's a way in which we may feel quite well from that. Now, I'm not suggesting that we're encouraging starving ourselves here. That's not skillful either. I mean, there's plenty of nourishment around in terms of that metaphor. I'm not suggesting we sort of lock ourselves in a dark, silent room and have no contact at all. That's not particularly useful in terms of what we're doing. So it's that sense of simplifying and not gorging ourselves. And then training. Training the mind. It's like training a puppy to follow one, to heal. Now what's, what happens if you train a puppy? The first time you, you know, you're standing, you put puppy down here, you say heal. But like, you know, you say to mind, okay, be with the breath. What does the puppy do? Does it follow you? Does it go running off into the bushes, chasing the butterflies, peeing on a tree, whatever? That's what it does. Do you see your mind? Now imagine what would happen if the puppy runs off, chasing a butterfly. You see, come here, bad dogs. Boom, stay here. Puppy runs off again. Come here, bad dogs, stay here. Pretty soon the puppy decides, this guy's really angry. I'm getting out of here at first opportunity. If you treat your mind in that way, Come back here, bad mind. Why is the mind going to want to stay around? It's going to say, I'm out of here. It's kind of dangerous in this place. I keep getting beaten up for something that I just did what I do. Whereas, you know, the puppy, you see the puppy runs up, say, hey, there you are. Look, there you are, chasing butterflies. Puppies chase butterflies. Come back here, look, stay here. Oh, okay. Running over there, doing that. Come, here you are, come back. After a while, puppy thinks, hmm, this guy's pretty friendly. And he's probably going to give me some dinner at the end of the day. Maybe I'll hang around. And there's a natural invitation, a drawing in 
of one's attention that comes when we bring it back in the spirit. And to see whatever comes, to see whatever we experience, it's, okay, can I open to this? Can I touch this? Can I explore this? So much of what goes on that's deeply painful is not the experiences we struggle with. The sense of, you know, my body aches or is weary or is agitated, that my mind is busy or reactive or just won't stand still or when it does it falls asleep. All of that that we struggle with that makes it hard for us to be here in some way isn't what's really hard. What's hard is that we tend to use our experience to somehow define ourselves. And if we feel that our experience isn't okay, then we are not. And that's really hard. That's really difficult. And this tendency is really strong to define ourselves by our experience. And yet, I mean, there's this classic example which you know someone referred to again in one of the groups, I think it was, where someone's meditating and, you know, sitting there and, oh, mind's busy, body's tired, can't do it. I open the eyes, look around, everyone else is sitting calm, still, alert, clearly practicing just perfectly and we look around and we think here am I in this room you know 50 people about to awaken to perfect Buddhahood and me you know 50 Buddhas one overcooked vegetable (laughs) and we believe it we really believe it you know people tell me about this every retreat even if I tell them that this might happen it still happens And of course this person, after some time, decides it's hopeless, I might as well give up, there's no point in this. And somebody else sitting next door to them opens their eyes, looks around and thinks, look at them, they're really still, they look so calm and peaceful. And the whole story plays out again. Have any of you noticed your mind doing that? Or, you know, the other one, of course, we know we're walking and we're really mindful and we think, I wonder has anyone noticed how mindful I am? You know, how slowly I'm walking. I must be looking pretty good, you know. <laughs> and just at that point, of course, we're quite likely to trip over or sort of walk into a bench because we're not really paying attention at all. But we're telling ourselves a story about what the experience that's happening means about me. And so long as we're doing that, it's inevitable that what happens the content of the experience really matters. And we constantly struggle to try and to fit into what we want it to be because we're actually trying to somehow make ourselves fit into what we feel is acceptable or what we want ourselves to be. And we can't do that. It doesn't work that way. So, being gentle with yourself, being kind with this process, seeing how We're not there. Have you noticed you're not there in the moment when your mind disappears? You didn't ever do that. You might possibly have decided to think about something else, but probably you weren't conscious at that moment. It just, there was a sound, it reminded you of something, and then, boom, you were thinking about whatever it was. I heard the sound of a rook, I remembered the one that, you know, made a mess on my car and I was really angry and da-da-da-da-da. 
But we didn't decide to disappear into thinking. And then when we're lost, unconscious, have you ever noticed how it is that you come back? Because if you don't come back, you will never know that you're unconscious. You wouldn't complain about it ever. But you do. We do. We suddenly, it's like the light comes on. How did the light come on? You weren't there to switch it on. By definition, you weren't there. You were unconscious. And then you realize you're unconscious and you're no longer unconscious. In that moment of realizing we're here. And the habit might be to say, oh, look, I was lost again. Oh, God, I can't do it. But we could equally and perhaps more usefully say, hey, look, I'm back. Wow, look what happened. This is it. This is here. This is now. And the breath's right here and the body's right here. Life's right here. So to see that that quality of presence, that opening to and connecting is something that happens when we orient ourselves towards it. We're not doing it or making it happen, but by opening to what's here, by opening to this possibility, it starts to happen. It starts to unfold in that way. And that in that unfoldment, what we can notice, what we start to see, and sometimes, you know, not sometimes, regularly, it's reported as that happens, there's a sense of of something that touches us more deeply. That there's a a connectedness and a nourishment and a well-being that comes out of that simple connection, that quality of presence, that alert, open engagement with what's happening, with our reactivity to it as well. Learning to let the reactivity go. Let it be. And yet it's the very connection that is the source of the nourishment. It's the very non-rejection of our experience, non-demand upon our experience that allows something else to come through. That's there naturally. That we don't have to produce, that we just simply have to stop resisting. Stop running away from. When we're not in the grip of fear, of resistance, of craving and demanding, when we're not in the grip of all this, there's a natural calm and quiet. There's a natural lightness and radiance to the mind and to the heart. There's a natural abiding. Abiding. I love that word. It's sort of from abode, I think. Imagine it comes from abode, sense of being at home, abiding. It's like where we're not somehow imagining that somewhere else is home. Because right here, in the very midst of anything or everything that might be happening, this is where home is to be found. It's not a location, it's an orientation. An orientation into what's true, that comes from that very truth itself and a willingness to honour it, a willingness to meet it, a willingness to explore what it is to be here in the face of all that comes. 
and to see that these experiences do not define who we are because they come and go, not in our control. Thoughts, feelings, sensations, everything that comes, goes, passes through and we see it come and go. We see our attempts to manipulate it and how they don't really work. What if we gave that up and gave up believing that all of these experiences somehow define us? In that moment we wouldn't know who we are. We wouldn't be able to determine who we were with our mind. But if we could let go of all of that, we would know in our hearts what was true. And that knowing would speak to us and does speak to us of peace and of freedom. And so we practice this simple and yet profound invitation to be awake by again and again turning back to where we are, reconnecting, opening with interest and curiosity to see, well, what is this that's happening here? And what, should, what would happen if I would meet it completely wholeheartedly, without reservation or demand, without assumption as to what it means about me or anything else. And yet, with interest, with curiosity. So this journey of awakening and this moment which invites us to be awake This is what matters. And so let us continue to practice as we have been doing. This is something that for each of us we can come to understand truly and deeply in our hearts. To really know the, the peace and the freedom that life is. So let's sit quietly for a few minutes together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.